Well, good morning. It's, uh, again, a privilege uh, to be back at Christ Community Church, and it's kind of almost a similar feel to Doketown now after uh, the music is done, all the aisles are full of children, and it's uh, really quite joyful to see that, and uh, always thankful to be here. Uh, one thing I want to mention, uh, Dave asked me to uh, tell everybody that our cantata was moved from last night to today at 4 p.m., and so... Uh, if you want to take an hour trek up the Route 8, uh, our church would love to have you there for our annual cantata. But that's happening uh, only once this year at 4 p.m. today. And so just to make a note of that. But uh, if you brought your Bible with you, I want to invite you to go to the book of Luke, the book of Luke and chapter 14. And uh, this isn't a Christmas sermon, by the way, even though we were singing Christmas carols and it's that time of year. But uh, the title of the message this morning is uh, Surrender to the King, and it's from verses 25 through 33. And before we read this passage, I just want to make a few remarks to uh, hopefully set this up for us, because uh, this passage in Luke 14 is one that kind of comes at us, and it can almost seem a little bit intense, it can almost seem a little bit unsettling, because there's something that Jesus addresses among his crowd that we need to be mindful of, even this morning, of our own soul and our own hearts, and even how this applies uh, to the church in general. Because we have to think about Jesus and his ministry at this point. So it's about the midway point. As you read the book of Luke, what you find is as you progress through the gospel, he's making his way back to Jerusalem for that final climax where he's handed over and He's uh, giving his life for the sake of his people. But what Jesus is doing at the midpoint, and this might seem strange to us, but it's actually true, is that he's drawing mass crowds. And they're coming to listen to him, but they're not only coming to listen to Jesus, but they're also following him around wherever he goes. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Because Jesus is in his public ministry, and he's putting on display the fact that he is, in fact, the one who is sent from the Father. Not only is he the one that's sent from the Father, but he's performing miracles. He's saying sayings that almost seem a little bit counter-religious from what people are used to. And so he's drawing these mass crowds that are following him. But Jesus perceives something about the crowds. And what that is, is just as many people who are there, who are willingly and happily and readily saying, I want to follow Jesus, I want to surrender my life over to Jesus, the reality is as many make that profession, but it doesn't stick. There's many people who are quick to say that they're joined with Christ, and then yet when you get to the end of Jesus' ministry, who's left with them? A few of his disciples, Mary, almost like everybody else has deserted him. And so Christ knows this, he knows that there's this tendency among people to make this quick profession to say that I'm going to go all in on Christ and then yet it doesn't follow through. And so what Jesus does in Luke 14 is he lines out for you and for me what exactly it means to follow Christ. And this is important for you and for me this morning because the things that we're going to be addressing that Jesus gives us that are a hindrance or things that get in the road of people following Christ they're not like way out there things. They're not things that seem like it's you know, you know, out, out of sight and mind, but they're very real, practical things that can cause someone 
to not follow through on their profession of Christ. And that's uh, not only sobering, but it should cause us to take a personal inventory when you think about it. Because everything that Jesus mentions that hinders people from following through in following Christ, like I said, isn't something that's out there, but it's very real temptations and very real things that can come into your own life that can tempt you to look back the other way. And so, with Jesus explaining all of this to us and with him giving us these four things, what it does is it exposes if there's rivals in our heart that come before Christ. And the reason why it's needful for you this morning to hear this is you have to be mindful of Jesus' words where he says that there are few who find eternal life. There are few. And so, when Jesus gives this intense message, it's not because Jesus is being harsh, it's not because he's got a chip on his shoulder, it's not because he's angry, but it's because he loves sinners and he makes sure that people know where their spiritual condition is. And so this morning as we go through this, my hope and my prayer is that God would speak to you in your own life and wherever you're at, and that uh, not only yourselves, but even myself included, just taking that personal inventory of what it really means to follow Christ. And so we'll read Luke 14, 25 through 33 together and then pray. Starting in verse 25, it says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, will the other is still far away he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Verse 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to come into your house and to hear from your word. And God, I ask that your power and presence would be here, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, I, I just even think of your own people, and I just pray that you would be gracious towards us, that you would draw us nearer to you, and that uh, any area in our life that uh, we just need to yield more over to you, God, that you would give us the grace to do it, that we would grow in not only the knowledge of you, but also in sanctification. And Lord, I also pray for anyone here this morning who isn't following Christ, who isn't a Christian that, God, you would be merciful and that you would speak to them and that they would see that Christ is absolutely worthy of all surrender and all worship and that they would submit to his lordship today. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the first heading that I put on uh, this passage is truly following Jesus. 
truly following Jesus. And so when you look at these commands that Jesus gives, some of them, like I said, they almost seem extreme, but they're kind of not extreme because they're not outside of what uh, mankind struggles with as a pitfall to not follow through. And so when you think about Luke 14 and when Jesus is speaking to these crowds, it can actually be a little bit unsettling, but it causes us to see something about following Christ. And that following Jesus is a life that is fully surrendered over to him. That there isn't this type of cavalier, easy come, easy go Christianity. It's that somebody is either all in or they're all out. There isn't one foot in Christ's kingdom and then another foot in the kingdom of the world. And so this is really what it means for the person who truly follows Christ. Now, the other thing is, before we look at these commands, sometimes people can almost put the cart before the horse. And you can read what Jesus demands in the gospel and you can say, okay, well, if I do this stuff, then that'll be enough for me to be forgiven. But that's not how that works either. Because, you know, you are not accepted by God based on obeying commands. Based on being accepted by the gospel of grace, that is what enables the believer to obey the commands of Christ. And so what we could say about Luke 14 is that Jesus is describing what the life of a Christian looks like, not what you do to become a Christian. And so it's important to make that distinction because if you don't have that distinction in your mind, everything I say, it's almost like it'll be backwards. But we have to ask this question because this is really where Jesus drives this point home of where people say they're going to follow through and then yet draw back. So what are the commands of Christ in Luke 14 in what it means to follow him? And so there's four, and I want to give them to you in order, and then we'll take them one at a time. But the first command that's given is that family is second to Christ. The second one is denying self. The third is bearing your cross. And the fourth is renounce all possessions, or in other words, surrender everything to him. And I just want to make this clear that in light of these commands, you can generalize it under one statement, which is to surrender all of your life to all that he is. And not only that, anything short of a full surrender and an allegiance to Christ is not Christianity. It's not salvation. It's not salvation to have one foot in Christ's kingdom and another foot in your own kingdom. It's either you take Christ for all that he is, or you leave him where he's at. And that's what Jesus is making clear. So we'll start with the first one. If we start in verse 26, notice what Jesus says again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus when he gives that phrase, cannot be my disciple, speaks of it in that sense, that it's something that's hindering someone from following him. And when we think about family, here's Jesus' point. Because somebody can read that, and they can also get the wrong impression, and they can say, okay, well, you know, does this mean I'm supposed to cut off all my family? I'm supposed to have bad relations with people? And that's obviously not what Jesus is getting at. You know, the Bible is super clear that we're to uh, honor our parents 
that you're to raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But what he's getting at is that Christ is first in everything, even with your family. You might say, well, what does that look like? What does it look like that Christ is the head of my family? What does it mean that he comes first above my family? And I want to make a few applications on this because this is something that, uh, honestly, I find uh, we can be blind to. But the first one that I put here is that his glory comes before the glory of your family. And one way that this fleshes out, I think about it often, is passivity with family. Passivity with family. In other words, maybe there's something in your family or a family member who wants you to condone a certain lifestyle. Maybe it's a rebellious child. Maybe it's a relative. You know, you fill in the gap of whatever your situation is. But to almost just withdraw from speaking the truth to them and be passive about the condition that they're in is to actually put the peace of the family above honoring Christ. And, you know, I kind of often think about this because most of my family, um, with the exception of uh, a few of my siblings and my dad and things like that, aren't saved. And so one of the things that it can be easy for me to not put Christ first is to just let those things slide and be passive about things. And not only that, even when family causes you to even look at Christ and diminish his role in your life. Think about unsafe family members all the time who not only don't want you to speak about um, something that maybe they're caught up in or something that's wrong, but then even want Christ to just almost stay at bay in your life. Okay, it's cool that you worship Jesus, but I don't really want you talking to me about him. And then almost like to be passive about that is to actually put family above Christ. And that's one that honestly I think everyone to some degree has to deal with. But then another one that I think is important, and it's definitely true in Jesus' day, it's true in our world today, but it's not as big in uh, New Brunswick, so to speak, but it is here, is family pressuring a person to reject Christ and to abandon Christ. And you might say, well, you know, I don't know of a whole lot of cases in which this happens, but, you know, actually as I was uh, away this summer in Pennsylvania, I kind of had my eyes opened a little bit because... Um, you know, I grew up in Woodstock, New Brunswick, and then I live in Doketown now, and it's a pretty small world, New Brunswick. And uh, I was on a trip uh, in Pennsylvania with John Snyder, and we were at a conference for the week, and we were raiding right Lancaster County, which is the uh, Amish capital of the United States. And so it was, it was honestly super eye-opening for me. But there's a guy who was down there, and his name was Mike, and he's walking through that right now of his family completely rejecting him because he wants to follow Christ. And so this is how this fleshed out. Um, we were at a camp meeting, John and I, he was preaching that night. And this guy, Mike, he was coming to the Bible studies. And uh, the Bible studies were great. I mean, they were bringing Amish ice cream and like all this Amish baking. And it was really quite something. But uh, we come to the camp meeting and Mike is there with his wife and his four boys. And what struck everyone kind of funny was he was there with a the Dodge minivan with like the sportiest wheels I have ever seen on a minivan, and uh, I grew up in a home where we always drove a minivan, and you know, ours were definitely were not too fancy, and Thomas, my brother, will tell you we were pretty rough on stuff, and Dad was putting Bondo in the van every other week, and I'd find a new way to kick it out or something, but uh, long story short, Mike is there with his van, and John, John uh, just immediately put two and two together, okay, he's an Amish guy, he's not supposed to be driving, he's here with a van, so like, what's up? 
And so we went to his uh, home later that week with his wife and their four boys. And as uh, we were talking, they said that they were actually planning on leaving the Amish because they had put their traditions above Scripture and they were going to full-heartedly follow Christ and the Word of God. But here's um, what really hit me. As we were talking, uh, they made it very clear that the moment they decided to pull out of the Amish, his parents and her parents would just completely write them off and have nothing to do with them or their grandsons ever again. Completely dead to them. And it was actually uh, quite sobering because when you think about his wife's testimony, she was converted by having an iPod, which was illegal to have in their community, and listening to sermons on an app. And he was converted two years later. And this is like almost something you read out of like China, you know. And what's amazing was I texted him about a few weeks later and asked how things were going. And he said that it was hard. He said, but he believed that God's grace would get them through and that Christ was worth it. You see, he could have just tried to keep his whole family intact. And even though I know that would have been his desire, Christ was more valuable to him that he was willing to step out and follow Christ wholeheartedly no matter what his family said. That's somebody who wants Christ and loves him above all else. But then the other one I put is idolizing family. Idolizing family above Christ. And honestly, you know, you look at our culture today, and I think one of the greatest representations of idolizing family over Christ is you just look at the sports scene and how often people are quick to miss church on Sunday for sports and have their kids at these games rather than serving the Lord. And then you even can think of people who would justify it and say, okay, well, you know, I don't do that on Sundays, but then you look at prayer meetings and they're not at prayer meetings. It's almost like everything is about their family first and then Christ is wedged in whenever there's time. And so it's something that sometimes people, I don't even think necessarily do it intentionally or they don't have their mind completely focused in on what they're actually doing, but anything that would cause your family to be pulled away from Christ and then you still hold on to him somewhat as your leftovers, that's an idolization of family above Christ. This is what Jesus' point is, is that he comes first in everything. But then lastly on family, this extends into more relationships than just your immediate family. And I often think about, you know, people who are yet to be a Christian. Maybe they have a relationship that's not right before God. And even that, in and of itself, is something that will hinder somebody from following Christ. And so you have to weigh all of that on the scale. You know, is my life, is not only my life, but my program and how I like to run my week, or is my relationship that isn't right before God, is, is all of that really worth putting above Christ? And not only putting above Christ, but then also worth losing eternal life in the end. And you see, it's crazy because will look at that type of sin in that way and just say, okay, well, this is worth it. And yet in the end, you know, they're greatly mistaken. And so, honestly, that's Jesus's point, that he's first in everything. And not only, not that you neglect your family, but that he is the head of the family and everything that you do with your family is funneled through giving glory and honor to Christ. Now, the second one is denying self. And I want, you to, want to point you to Luke chapter 9 for a moment. And we'll go to verse 23. This is another instance where Luke speaks about self-denial. Luke 9, 23, notice what he says. 
And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And you see right there what the point of Jesus is on self-denial. To lose your life. To lose your life for the sake of Christ. And I put a few things here. The first one is pride. There's also selfishness or doing your own thing. Sin, pleasure, everything that you desire to do for yourself, to serve self, to seek self, to pleasure self. Every single bit of that, what it means in self-denial is that that has to go and that there's now somebody else who is controlling your life. I want to give you a few verses on this. The first one is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. You can turn there. It's a very, uh, very helpful verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. It says, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Notice that verse one more time, where it says, So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. One more verse to help put this together for us is Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Romans 6.11 says, Even so, consider yourselves, you can almost say, if you want to follow Jesus, if you claim to follow Jesus, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God through Christ Jesus. And so what it means that there's the denial of self is that the old life is gone. That's what it means. And whatever that old life looked like for you, whatever sin or pleasure it was, you know, you can just insert almost anything that you want in that list. And, you know, if I fill in some gaps, I'll leave other people out. But you know your own heart. You know what those things are that you loved more than Christ before you were converted. Or maybe you know what you love more than Christ right now if you're not converted. You know exactly what's standing in the road between you and him. And so this is the reality when it comes to denying self. When you're confronted with that, when you're confronted with, okay, this sin is wrong, this pleasure is wrong, and then Jesus says, that's over, you say, that's over, and you follow Christ in that. You obey Christ in that. And so the question to ask yourself in denying self is, have you let go of your pride? Have you let go of your selfishness, your sin, the pleasures that you love more than anything before you came to Christ, or maybe what you love more than anything right now? When Jesus says it's over, it's over. And so that's a telltale sign of whether or not you've denied self to follow Christ, that the old life is done and that a new one has begun. Exactly like what it says in Romans 6, 11, that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not only that, when you think about it, it actually causes you to live exactly like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that once you've denied self, once the old life is gone, you no longer are living for yourself, but for the one who died and gave his life for you. And so is that true of your life this morning, that you no longer are living for yourself, 
but you are living for the one who died for you, that you are living for the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ. Because in all honesty, so many people can think that they have some level or some form of a relationship with Christ, and yet if self is still on the throne, if self is still ruling, if self hasn't been crucified and surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then the Bible makes it absolutely crystal clear that there is a spiritual problem, that you have not stepped out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And so that's a sobering thought this morning, that there's not only Christ who is first in family, but Christ is first above yourself. Has the old life gone? But then we come to one that's more difficult, because sometimes it's, um, it's, it's hard, and that's bearing our cross, because... We can look at Christ over family, we can look at denying ourselves, and it doesn't seem like there's tons and tons of consequence. But then the third one that Jesus gives is bearing your cross. And this is one where, quite honestly, even when you look at um, Peter, for example, he fell, even as a believer. When things got tough, he denied Christ, because the prospect of suffering or for others, actual suffering can be that thing that gets in the way to cause somebody who might have once said they were going to follow Christ to turn away. And see, that's the reality. Suffering in this life for the sake of Christ is the reality for the Christian. You know, so often you just hear people, um, whether they're TV preachers or radio or just whatever, that once you become a Christian, that all your worries go away. Not only do all your worries go away, but it's the good life, it's your best life now. I remember... uh, when I was in Bible school, I, got, I saw this book called Every Day of Friday, and it's just like, you know, it's so far from the truth. Because when you think about Jesus, what does he even say? That no one is above their master, and who suffered more than Christ? I want you to think about this for a moment. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 21. And this is how Jesus lines this out for us. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 21. It says, Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Notice verse 23. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man has come. When you read what Jesus lines out for the hard road before his disciples, it's not the easy life, is it? It's not the easy life. Go to Matthew 24, verse 9. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 9 says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. It's not the good life. Notice verse 10, exactly what Jesus is warning against. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. See, when things get hard, when persecution or suffering comes, It says, and at that time, many will fall away. 
Many who would have one time so excitedly acclaimed that they were going to follow Jesus, and then when the things got tough, they turned away. One more verse in John's Gospel, chapter 16. Right before the promise of the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we get almost a shell-shocking verse in John chapter 16, verse 2. John 16, 2 says, They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering a service to God. You ever notice that verse? Every single radical Muslim believes that when they kill a Christian. Not only that, I remember um, watching a few videos with Dave recently of just people who are persecuted. They're almost videos that you can't even watch. You know, people where Christ is so valuable to them that they are actually beaten and tortured and suffering to the very point of death, all for love of Christ and the eternal reward. And sometimes it's hard to get that imagery, even where we are here. But I just want to ask you this question. That takes different degrees. You know, for us, it might not look like that, but, you know, it could look like something in the workplace where, you know, there's pushback because of your stand for Christ. There's pushback with family, pushback with really anybody. But that's a really good question to ask. Not that, you know, we go out there and try to become a nuisance and, you know, try to check off a box and say, okay, I got X amount of people mad at me because I love Jesus. But it's, is there any pushback at all because you live for the glory of Jesus Christ in your life? Not that you seek it, but notice what Jesus says, that it will come. Even Paul says that in Philippians 1.29, you don't have to turn there, but he says, it is granted to you. In other words, it's a gift, not only that you believe in me, but also that you will suffer for my name's sake. John Piper put it this way. He said that when you become a Christian, he said suffering is like a big present with a big red bow on the very top of the box. It will follow somebody who wants to follow Jesus. It's just how it goes. The world hates Christ. And if the world hates Christ and we're mastered by him, are we above him? The answer is no. See, the problem today is that tons of people want to be forgiven. Tons of people want to have salvation, but nobody wants to suffer for Christ, almost. Only those who truly are submitted to Christ are willing to take that line for him. Then the last one in verse 33 is to renounce all possessions. In other words, willing to surrender everything over to Christ. And so I think a good example of this in Mark chapter 10 is you have the rich young ruler. And so he asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And he said, well, I've kept all those since my youth. But then Jesus exposes something about him and that he might have had all these other areas right, but there was still one thing that was preventing him from being at peace with Christ. And in Mark 10, what Jesus does is he tells him to sell all that he has and give it to the poor. And it says the man went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, this is the reality, is that Jesus was number two and his wealth was number one. Jesus was number two, his wealth was number one. And it makes you think of this when it comes to surrendering over everything of our life to who Christ is. When you think of Matthew 13, 44, it talks about the treasure that is hidden in the field, and then the man goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. And so imagine that took place today, and you knew that there was a hidden treasure in the field, and the man who owned the field knew that you would never be able to afford it. 
and you went up to the man and you knew that that, that field was worth absolutely everything, and you said, look, I, I want to buy that field from you, and he said, well, I don't think you can afford it. But let's see where you're at. And you tell him, okay, well, I got 20 grand saved up in my account. Where is that? He's like, well, that's a good start. And then you say, well, you know, I, I don't really know where I can get more money. Like, I could sell one of my two cars. Oh, you have two cars, not just one. And he writes both cars down on the list. It's like, well, if I can't get to work, I can't pay for my house. Oh, so you also have a house. And so as he continues to add up every single asset, you get this picture that Christ is not only wanting us to surrender a little bit, give him lip service, but he wants us to surrender all that we are and all that we have to all that he is. And so think about it in this way, that there is nothing that you have that you would ever withhold from his kingdom if he would require it of you. That everything we have in this world is given ultimately by him and we hold it with a loose grip because our ultimate desire is to glorify him and have every single aspect of our life submitted over to Christ. Now, here's the question. Someone can respond to these demands of Christ, and they might say this. Well, it, it seems like it's a lot. seems like it's too much. Not only does it seem like it's too much, it goes kind of against what I want to do, right, when self is still on the throne. It goes against our natural inclination. It goes against our natural desires. But then there's also this other question that people will ask. Is it even possible to respond to Jesus in a way where there is absolute allegiance to him? And I believe that the answer is yes. And here's a few reasons. The first one is that the ability to submit to Christ in that way does not depend on your ability to do it. That's the first thing. Because what you find is that God in his mercy awakens the sinner, gives him a new heart with new desires. Isn't that what it says? That if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so that power to submit to Christ in that way doesn't come from within, but it comes from the Holy Spirit who comes and gives you new life. It enables a person to see Jesus for who he really is, that he's worthy of all worship and surrender because before the work of the Spirit in your life, you'll look at those demands of Christ and you'll say, that's, that's out there. I'm not doing that. But when God comes and invades and moves in on your life, you begin to sing a different tune because you begin to see things as it really is. But then there's one more reason why I believe it's possible, and it's because we cannot separate doctrine from the life of Christ. Think about it from this respect. Jesus models his commands perfectly. And so every time that Jesus gives a command in Luke 14, he set the perfect example of how that command is obeyed. And so if it's possible for Christ, in the sense that he is a man, obviously he was the God-man, but it's also possible for his people who have received the Holy Spirit. Because if you look at Jesus and how he models all of these commands, think of what the Bible says, that we're to be imitators of him. Why would Jesus imitate something that you and I can't do? Why would he imitate something that we can't follow through on as a Christian? I want to unfold this for you because I just want you to see this link that Jesus doesn't command anything of you that he hasn't modeled himself. First and foremost, Jesus glorified the Father in all that he did. His Father had first place in his life. There was no other rivals in his heart. 
Think about what it says in John 4.34. Doesn't Jesus say that my food is to do the will of him who sent me? My food, in other words, my substance, what fills me, what satisfies me, is to do the will of him who sent me. For Christ, his father was number one, everything else was number two. Think about how Jesus was unselfish and he was humble in every single way. Mark 10.45, and we don't need to turn to these verses, they're familiar, but it says that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, the Son who came from the Father, he came from heaven, from his elevated position, came to this earth, and instead of being served like he could have been, he humbly served and denied himself to the very point of death for the salvation of his people. How could you have a model of self-denial any better than Christ? Think about the next one, that Jesus endured suffering and reproach for the glory of his Father. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. You think about this, it's not just at one point in Jesus' life. Even when he was at the age of 12, they, thought, they sought to throw him off of a cliff. Everywhere he went, it seemed like there was oppression and affliction just following him all the way around. But then you get to... John's Gospel, and in chapter 18, verse 11, I want you to see this verse for a moment. John chapter 18, verse 11. It says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. We know what that is. That's the cup of wrath. Shall I not drink it, he says. Shall I not drink it? Let me ask you this question. Who would have suffered more than the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is nobody. And then the next one is that he gave absolutely everything over to the Father, including his own life. You know what it says in Isaiah 53, that it pleased the Lord to crush him and that he has put him to grief? But then if you go to John chapter 19, verse 30, notice what it says. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, that's the cup of wrath, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All four commands that Jesus gives in Luke 14, he modeled and obeyed absolutely perfectly in his own life and in his own model. And so when Jesus gives these commands... It's not something that's outside of him. It's not something that is a different standard for you or for me. But it's the very path that he followed. And so if we're going to follow him, we need to follow in that same command and those same commands of the gospel. Because in all honesty, to be an imitator of Christ is to follow him. It's not doing our own version of Christianity, our own version of what it means to trust him. Being a disciple in its most fundamental meaning is this to follow Jesus and to learn from him at his feet. Anything less than following Christ and learning from his feet is not Christianity and it's not salvation. Now Jesus, with great concern for his hearers, gives these commands and he makes clear what it looks like if somebody's following him. But he makes sure to give a few illustrations so that nobody would be um, deceived or unaware of where they stand with Christ as a follower. Because like I said, tons and tons of people are following him, 
He's creating this stir. Tons of people are saying that they're going to follow Christ. Jesus knows that the amount of people who will follow through on that, like I said, the Bible says there are few who find eternal life. And he gives two warnings so that people would not be so quick to say they're going to do one thing and then yet do the other. And so here's the first illustration or the first warning, and it's the warning against false profession. Notice verse 28 through 30. We'll read it again. It says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man has began to build and was not able to finish. Now, I don't claim to be a construction worker. Um, I know many people here do that type of work, and it's quite amazing to see the stages of a building as it goes up. But uh, when it comes to really counting the cost of building a building, I can think of one example in particular. When I was in high school, there was a teacher who was always getting government grants for things, and he got a grant to build a greenhouse at the school. And so he got all this rough sawn hemlock, which is super strong lumber, but it doesn't weather super good, so if it's not covered up, it turns gray super fast. And uh, he didn't have enough to finish the building, but he framed it, and he put a roof on, and he covered the walls to a degree, no windows, no doors, no insulation, nothing underneath. Um, you know, even the roof was completely open. And so, uh, honestly, the building just became an eyesore. And not only did it become an eyesore, it became almost like a point of, Everyone just laughing their head off every time they drove into the schoolyard and we just saw this half-completed greenhouse that nobody was ever using. And I felt a bit bad for the teacher in the sense that everybody was kind of poking fun at him. And it kind of got too far because it got mocked to the point where a guy came up, he was a grade 12 student, and hooked a chain to his truck and basically tore the whole thing down. But uh, long story short, it was very noticeable that that was not completed. It's very noticeable that a work had begun and it wasn't finished. And so what Jesus' point here is this. Is it's the same with the crowds. They're quick to say that they want to follow Jesus. They're quick to say that they're going to lay that foundation. They're going to, they're going to build that tower, so to speak, um, with their life on Christ. But then they turn back on their profession when things get tough. That there's a beginning with Christ, so to speak, but it doesn't follow through. And here's the reason why this is dangerous. It's very dangerous. And this is why it's good to take personal inventory this morning. Because those people who would have so quickly said they were going to follow Jesus, at some point in time, would have felt moved by a degree, or to a degree, by Christ. Think about all that he was doing. Think about all that he was saying. And just think about tons of people, even in the church today, who might think they have a relationship with God. Maybe they were moved at some point. Maybe they felt stirring to some degree. And not only that, maybe there was even a season to, of desiring to follow Christ. There was a season where they wanted to walk close with Christ. And there was good intention, and everything seemed like it was supposed to be. And then, just like that building where there wasn't enough resources to finish it, once something got tough, they abandoned. And it became plain to everybody. And it's the same even today when people profess that they know Christ and then when they abandon or they shipwreck, it becomes noticeable. And not only does it become noticeable, but it's something that honestly, and, and it's, it's sad that it happens in the world, 
but people will jump right on top of that and mock and ridicule people. And so what Jesus is saying is be careful about that profession. If you're not willing to follow it all the way through, don't say you have one foot in the door when really you're not willing to go all the way in. That's what he's getting at. I want to point you to one verse in Hebrews chapter 3 that really uh, helps us with this. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. I want you to notice something. When it says an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, he's speaking to the visible church here, speaking to someone who would have at one point said, I'm going to follow Christ, but the whole time it was an evil, unbelieving heart, one that may have been moved, but was not joined to Christ. And here's the reasons why they go back on this profession. This is exactly what Jesus lines out. The first one is that there's pressure to abandon Jesus, whether it's from family or others. That happened in the book of Hebrews all the time. The Judaizers were trying to tell them that they could have Christ and Judaism too. There can be that sense in which people are pressured to abandon Jesus, whether it's your family or anything like that at all. And yet, for the person who was going to follow through, Christ is more valuable to them that almost like all of that stuff, all of that pressure is something that you just put off and almost just put a set of blinders on and continue on with Christ. The second one that I think is super common is that there's still a love for the old life. That there might have been a profession at one point, but there's still the residence of self on the throne in the old life. And so ask yourself that question this morning. Is your old life in the road between you and following Christ this morning? Because maybe your old life that you would say it's your old life is actually your current life. Where do you stand with God in that respect? The next one, the prospect of suffering or actual suffering. When things get tough, are you tempted to pull back from Christ? Are you tempted to turn back on that profession so that everything will begin to go easy again? And then the last one is to want to maintain the control of your life, the refusal to surrender all that you are to all that he is. That's what it means to start out by building, but not count the cost and not finish the tower. Have you considered those four things? Or have you just said that you're going to sign up and paid no attention to what it really means to follow Jesus? Then the next warning in verse 31 and 32 is a warning against the refusal to surrender. Notice verse 31. It says, Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And so this is really the final warning, not only against the refusal to surrender, but even the warning against indifference to Christ's commands. Think about it from this perspective. The image that we're given is that there's a coming conflict or a coming battle. And the image that you get is there's two kings and there's two kingdoms. And to make this super clear and super plain, one king is Christ and his kingdom. The other king is yourself and your own kingdom that you rule. There's one kingdom that has 20,000 and there's one kingdom that has 10,000. 
The kingdom with 20,000 is Christ's kingdom, and the kingdom with 10 is representative of your kingdom. And I want to be clear that your allegiance this morning is in one kingdom or the other. But here's the problem, and here's the reason why Jesus gives this warning of indifference. Because so many people like to just deceive themselves and even lie to themselves and say, look, I might know that, okay, I'm not living for Christ's kingdom. I know that I, I, I definitely am not following Jesus. But at the same time, even though I'm over here in my kingdom and ruling my own life, I don't have a problem with Christ. I don't have a problem with his kingdom or his people or anything like that at all. It's just I'm going to continue to do my own thing. And, you know, God will be okay with that. And he'll leave me alone and he'll just let me do my own thing. And here's the honest reality. There are so many people today who have that view that if I just stay to myself, if I just do my own thing and I don't really bother God, then he won't bother me. I, I kid you not, there are tons and tons of people who have that view. There's even one guy at our church who's been coming week in and week out, and when I talk to him, you know, his, his wife loves the Lord, and he'll just say, you know what, I, I don't have any issues with her going to church. I don't have any problem with anything she does. It's just not really for me. It's so easy to almost even say that as a way to try to justify yourself. But look, indifference to Christ's kingdom is the exact same as the rejection of Christ's kingdom. And you have to think about it from this respect. If that is really the case, that if God will just leave you alone and let you do your own thing, then is Christ's kingdom really the kingdom that will stand forever when all other kingdoms are said to come to an end? Look, Christ's kingdom will rule and it will stand forever in every single kingdom that does not belong to Christ, that isn't under the rule of Christ, it will fall and it will crumble. It really will. And here's the honest reality this morning. Jesus is coming to set all things straight. And even though you might say, I don't have a problem with him, the fact that you are living your own kingdom, you're ruling your own life, and living for yourself and not for the one who gave his life for you, puts you at odds with God already. You see, there's no point in trying to make your own terms when your kingdom is the one with 10,000 and his is the one with 20,000. You see, Christ is supreme, and not only is Christ supreme, but it's his terms. It's his terms, and it's his way. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He doesn't cut any deals. There's no remaining indifferent towards Christ. There's no, I'm going to just stay over my own life, and then everything will be okay in the end. Look, on that final day, when Christ returns, he is coming, and he's coming to judge. And not only is he coming to judge, but he is coming to put an end to anything that is not subjected to his rule, whether that refers to um, you know, the principalities of the air, but also your own life if it's not submitted over to Christ. Think about this in this respect. Is your kingdom, that is 10,000, that will fail and fall on that final day, worth holding on to and then being destroyed by the coming king? What in this world is worth holding on to and then rejecting Christ, remaining indifferent towards Christ? Think about it from this perspective. You can try everything to justify yourself. You can try everything to just put that idea off. But Jesus, even right now, in spite of the reality of 
his kingdom being far greater than your own kingdom, he's offering terms of peace this morning. And that's the other warning against indifference. Is the warning against indifference is also this. Yes, Christ is offering terms of peace, but I'll worry about that later. I don't need to really deal with that. And that's my honest hope this morning, that nobody here would presume upon the mercy of God, especially with the hope that you get in verse 32, where it says, or else while there is still far away, he sends a delegate that asks for terms of peace. Look, you have to realize this this morning, that it doesn't matter how opposed your kingdom is or isn't to Christ in the sense that if you are outside of him, there is mercy being offered today in Christ. And so it doesn't matter what sin you've committed. It doesn't matter what sin still has you trapped up. It doesn't matter what you're holding on to that you think is more valuable than him. Honestly, if you let go of that and you turn and surrender everything of your whole life over to Christ, he will be merciful. Because in all honesty, if you step into that final day in conflict with Christ and you don't settle with him in the days of the terms of peace, it will be absolutely terrible for you. It really will. Because his kingdom will be supreme. It will outrule all other kingdoms. And every single enemy of Christ will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity. But the good news this morning is that you can settle outside of the judgment with Christ. You might ask, what are the terms of peace that Christ offers this morning? The terms of peace can be summarized by verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. You might ask, how do you know that you're following Christ? How do you know that you're headed for eternal life? How do you know that you have um, stepped into salvation with Christ? Here's the honest reality. Have you surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Have you turned away from your sin? Have you surrendered all that you are to all that he is? Have you taken that old life and have you left it behind? And are you following after Christ at his feet? And it's honestly just that simple. You know, the honest reality is that it's not, I have one foot over here with Christ and I have another foot over here with the world and it's all going to be okay. The honest reality is this. I see that my kingdom is for myself. I see that it's for my sin. I see that it's opposed to God. I see that everything about it is wrong because it glorifies me and it doesn't glorify the one who made me. And that your desire is to leave that life behind, to leave every single thing behind. And instead of going in that direction for, and pursuing what God is opposed to, pursuing what's evil, you go the next direction and you follow after the God who gave his son for you that you could be saved so that you can live to glorify him. It's a turning from the old life to the new life and then resting alone in Christ. And so this morning, I urge you that if you are sitting here this morning and you know that there is that rival in your heart that would cause you to not follow after Christ, or you know, you might come and think that you're following after Christ for a couple days and you go home and it's back to your own program. Look, don't play games this morning. Don't play games. Especially considering how much God has loved you in sending his son Christ for you. Don't play games. Because in all honesty, that kingdom is coming. It will stand forever. And on that final day, just think about this. If you hold on to what has first place in your life over Christ, 
Is it going to be worth it on that final day to lose your own soul, especially when God has been so merciful in the gospel? And he calls you, even this morning, to repent and to believe. My honest prayer this morning is that if you belong to Christ, that you would be encouraged in the sense that it's always good to have our mind recalibrated on what it means to really follow after the one who leads us to be a disciple of Christ. But also my prayer is if you're here this morning and you don't belong to Christ, that you would just honestly be real about your situation. And not only be real about your situation, but also understand that God is the one who's being real about your situation too. That's why he went as far as he did to save you. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. If you settle your account with God today, it's settled and it's sealed for good. And so what this morning would you hold on to to keep the control of your own life that would be worth falling under his judgment as opposed to stepping into that final kingdom that stands forever where you have absolute peace, absolute hope, and absolute life eternal with God, the one who made you. Would you pray with me? Father, again, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you for your word, and I thank you for even the words of Christ here where he cuts the line of what it means for someone who really follows Christ or somebody who might know a bunch of things, but they have not laid hold to the eternal life that's in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would press upon our hearts and our minds that following you isn't just having a bunch of knowledge or saying the right things or agreeing with the right facts, but that it's a life that is surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. And God, I pray that if anyone is here this morning and there's a rival in their heart, something that's preventing them from surrendering, just like the crowds where they were quick to say they would follow Jesus and then something else took first place, God, I pray that you'd be merciful and that you would save and that nobody would leave here today with um, their soul unsettled before you, knowing that today are the days of peace. You're offering your terms today, and that's so clear to surrender all that we are to all that you are. Lord, I just ask that your name would be praised through the preaching of your word, and not only that, but that your kingdom would advance in this world, and that you would grow this church, and that we would see you move in the days ahead. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.